their lessons for life. So I hope, yeah, last week you all did your homework and figured out the lessons for life. And as we did last week, we explore some major events and stories that are in the Torah. Look at them from their seemingly simplistic meaning and look at them from the way maybe we've learned them as Bible stories. And then we delve into it head first, looking into the mystical meanings and discussing the teachers and how we can learn from those mystical and esoteric teachings and how they can change our lives for the here and now. Our subject story for today is the none other, probably one of the most well-known Bible stories ever, Noah's Ark. Many kids have been reading these stories as fables or as legends, but as we know that everything in the Torah is absolute truth, and therefore every single part of this story has an absolute truth to it. So as we did last week, we start off with a little video which is going to outline the story the way it is in the actual Torah and the Bible and the book of Genesis and then we're going to go analyze it and delve into it from all sides so we're going to start now with first the story narrated the way it's in the Torah in your textbooks we are going to be starting on page 38 text number 1a is going to be what we're going to video is going to be reading 1a and 1b for those that would like to follow along with the video, again, text 1A and 1B on page 38 in the textbook is going to be our first video, which will take us through the story of Noah's Ark, how it's numerated in the book of Genesis. Do you have sound there on, online? Give um, me a thumbs up if you have sound. No. No sound? No sound. Give me one second. Still no sound? No sound. I can only hear you. Okay, hold on one second. One second. Let me see why we're not getting sound here. Hold on. Why don't I have sound? Just give me a second. We'll see why that's not happening. Oh, share computer sound. Oh, that's why. Okay. We're going to start that video just one more time so you get the whole introductory music as well. One second. Now you sound? Excellent. You guys hear it? Oops, what's going on? Yes. God saw that the evil of man was multiplying upon the earth, and that every impulse of the thoughts of his heart is only evil all day, and he was pained to his heart. And God said, I will erase the human being that I have created from upon the face of the earth, from man to beast, to crawling thing, to bird of the heavens, for I have regretted that I have made them. found grace in the eyes of God. These are the chronicles of Noah. Noah was a perfectly righteous man in his generations. Noah walked with God. Noah fathered three sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth. God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupted 
as all flesh had corrupted its way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, as the earth is filled with violence from them, and here I will destroy them from the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood and coat it from within and from without with pitch. And thus you shall make it 300 cubits the length of the ark, 50 cubits its width, and 30 cubits its height. Bottom, second, and third levels you shall make it. And I, here I will bring the flood of water upon the earth. All that is on the earth shall expire. I will establish my covenant with you, and you will come into the ark, you and your sons, and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And from all that lives, two of each, bring into the ark to keep alive with you, male and female they should be. And Noah did as all that God commanded him. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, all of the wellsprings of the great deep split open, and the hatches of the heavens were opened. And the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. The waters increased, and they lifted the ark, and it rose above the earth. And the ark moved upon the surface of the waters, and the waters surged upon the earth 150 days. God remembered Noah and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. In the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The waters went on, diminishing. In the tenth month, on the first of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. And it was in the six hundred and first year, in the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth was fully dried. And God spoke to Noah to say, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. All the animals that are with you, take them out with you. Noah built an altar to God, and he brought up a scent offerings on the altar. God smelled the soothing aroma and God said to his heart, Nevermore shall I again curse the soil on account of man, for the impulse of the heart of man is evil from his youth, and nevermore shall I again smite all living things as I have done. God blessed Noah and his children, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the awe and dread of you will be upon all animals of the earth. In your hands they are given.
God said to Noah and to his children with him to say, And I, here I am establishing my covenant with you and with your seed after you and with all living souls that are with you. My bow I have set in the cloud and it shall be a sign of covenant between me and the world. And it will be when I darken clouds upon the earth and the bow will appear in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and all living souls, that the waters will not again become a flood to destroy all flesh. This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. Okay, so I'm sure you all got to see this. I'm just going to adjust this so we can go here. Okay. As you can see, this was the story of Noah's Ark, the way it's described in the Bible. And obviously, within the next 65 minutes or 70 minutes, we can go through every single question about the story of Noah's Ark. But we are going to take a few questions that we're going to look at and analyze the story of what happened here. And we're going to look at four basic questions. And from those four basic questions, we are going to try to analyze and dig deeper. And from the mystical point of view, we're going to have a better and deeper understanding in general to the scope of what the flood and Noah's Ark was all about. And thereby understanding as well what the purpose and everything else of all the details that we will hope to cover in today's class. So before we present the questions, there's probably an overall question that anybody that reads the story of Noah's Ark has. And especially a question in today's day and age, any person reading Noah's Ark and the story of the flood, looking at through the modern days of age and looking through modern eyes, the obvious question that people ask, is it really true and how is it really possible that everybody at the time was so evil, that everybody there was deservant of destruction? What about children? What about animals? Yes, we know the thievery and all the terrible things that was pervasive. And it was a disaster. But to say that every single living being, men, women, children, animals, birds, everything of all kinds should be destroyed. Wasn't there a few righteous people? Was Noah and his family the only righteous people that were there? And these questions, however are based on the fact that when somebody looks at the story of the flood, looks at it as a punishment that happened to the world. That means that you look at the people were bad, and because of that, God punished them. But if we look at the story of the flood, not as a punishment, but as the way the Torah describes it, in the beginning, before God brings the flood upon the earth, what does the God say? He regrets the way he made mankind. The Torah doesn't believe that life arose spontaneously on the ground. And it all of a sudden simply exists without a cause and a reason. Rather, that life on earth is there because God wants it. 
and God put it on earth to express his goodness and kindness. It is for this reason that God made freedom of choice. Freedom of choice by definition means that the world has a purpose for its creation. Because if there wouldn't be freedom of choice, there wouldn't be a purpose. God just can make it the way he wants. Now, following this logical concept that if there's freedom of choice, some purpose of the world only happens if people have freedom of choice. When you give somebody freedom of choice, what do you also then happens? That same freedom of choice that you create the individual to make purpose in the world, they can also do not what you like. Because that's what freedom of choice means. So if the human being who takes the freedom of choice that God has granted them and he uses it instead of for the purpose of the world and instead destroys the world to the extent of irreparable repair, then that's what you're left with. So by creating the human being and giving the human being the freedom of choice, as we'll later discuss as well, you are now allowing your opening, so to speak, a can of worms. You're leaving it now to the gamble of the human being. Should the human being follow the purpose of why the world was created? Great, the world would flourish. But if not, what is the human being going to do? Bring it to a case where it allows it for irreparable, irreparable sin and ultimately irreparable destruction. So what happened to the world by the flood was not merely a punishment to the people of their behavior, but merely a consequence of the choices that they made, which brought the world to the disaster that it was. So the catastrophic failure that happened at the time was very fact that there was that possibility that existed by giving the humans the freedom of choice. This is the deeper meaning. If you look into the words that we said, and if you look back on page 38, line 16 and 17, if you can see what it says there, line 16 and 17, God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupted and all flesh have corrupted its way of the earth. The Hebrew word for corrupted is tashchis, which I'm sure you'll be familiar with the word bal tashchis, not to destroy. That means the very virtue that God saw the earth and behold, it was destroyed. Oops. The holder was destroyed, meaning man on their own destroyed the world to that extent. So what we see over here is it was destroyed because human beings, by their behavior or by their choices, instead of making choices to be able to make the world a better place, they made choices which brought destruction and havoc on the world. So the same verse that we talk about corruption tells us that therefore the world had in essence been destroyed by itself. The destruction was the very foundation of its existence. The reason why it was created was with God's kindness. Everything that followed was just an actualization of the basic reality of the people of the time that they brought it to its own destruction. Which this leads us, of course, to our first question. And our first question is that if it was that bad, that people brought it to its own destruction, What's stopping it from happening again? Freedom of choice wasn't taken away from us. If it's really so bad that what happened, why did the flood cause? Why was the flood caused? Because of people's corruption. Does that mean that the flood can happen again? If we don't behave properly. One second. Well, why not? That means if not, I'll take it even a step further. 
If you look over here, you can see it in your student textbook on page 38, lines one through 10, you will see the question becomes even more difficult when we look at God's music and you can see it in figure 2.1 on page 44. If you don't have to turn all the way back there, figure 2.1 on page 44. If you compare the musings of God, when he looks at the very fact of why he decided to destroy the world. You ask the question, if you look at the words, you will see that almost nothing changed. In Genesis 6, 5, 7, God says, just to read the words, God saw every impulse of the thoughts of man and his heart was only evil. And he was pained his heart and God said, I will erase the human being that I have created from upon the face of the earth, from man to the beast, to the crawling, to the birds of the heavens, so I have regretted at making them. In Genesis 8, 21, after the flood, what does God say to his heart? Nevermore shall I again curse the soil on the account of man, for the impulse of the heart of man is evil from his youth. If you look at the way God looked at it, what was the reason why he made the flood? Because the human impulse of is for evil. Pre-flood, that's what it caused the destruction. After the flood, same thing. What was the reason for the destruction? Because the human impulse is bad. The same basic reason of why God brought the flood is the same basic reason why he destroyed the world. Now, of course, every good debater is going to tell you that the same question that you're challenged with, you can use and just flip it around as an answer. But God's not making a debate here. Over here, God is really boils down to what conclusion are you inclined to reach? God is taking in a situation, he's musing, he says, why did he come and bring about the flood? Because people misbehave. Because the human being, the human impulse is for evil. Why am I not going to bring a flood again? Because the human impulse is for evil. So what changed? Can God give up? So was the flood, so in other words, prior to the flood, the default conclusion meant that the world was so bad, it was beyond repair, and therefore was destroyed. After the flood, the human being is so bad, therefore I'll never destroy the world again. And our question is, what changed? Second question. What was the solution? How did God say, you know what? I'm going to save you guys. What did he tell? What did he tell Noah? Build an ark. He has to build an ark. And now if you look at the details, we went through some of it in the beginning. The details of the building of the ark. It had to be this exact measurement. There had to be gopher. There had to be ta- all the different things that he had to do. And he had to stay in the ark for a year long until the water would dry out. And the Torah records every single detail. We know nothing in the Torah is superfluous. How much more so? The fact that it even happened. And according to the commentaries, it took him 120 years to build the ark. Besides the fact that in the ark you had to deal with all the animals and make sure they had the food and all the different stress that went into it. In the words of Nachmanides, I'm sorry, sir, in the words of Ramir Simchav Dvensk in text number two on page 45, the flood lasted for 12 months. This despite the fact the entire flood was a supernatural event and the survival of Noah and the animals in the ark required this special divine intervention. Being that this was the case, why couldn't God simply destroy all creations in a single instant? We know that God is very powerful. And we know that if God wants, with just like this, everything can be destroyed. And even when he goes just like this, everything to be destroyed, 
something can be saved. All of a sudden, God needs Noah to build an ark to save him, to do this, to do that, and the other. What's the problem here? God forgot his magic tricks. He needs no, and not only that, within the magic tricks, he made a special flood, and in the special flood, all the details and all the maneuvering, for what? He could have done like this. It would have been, everybody would have been destroyed. Rabbi. Yes. How old was Noah when um, this started? He was 600 years old when he entered the flood, when he entered the ark. Third question. Question number three. I'm sure you're all very, very familiar with one of the promises that God made after the flood, that he's not going to bring a flood again. What was the symbol of it? God showed us a rainbow. And God showed the rainbow, and he said, never again will I bring a flood. First of all, was there never a rainbow before the flood happened? Isn't the isn't rainbow an act of nature? That when vapor suspended in the atmosphere, all of a sudden you see a rainbow. Were there no rainbows before the flood? So some of the commentaries want to say that there was actually a rainbow before the flood. But God took the rainbow symbol and made it as the symbol of never again to a flood to be brought. Just a little tidbit on the side. According to Jewish law, we have to make a special blessing when we see a rainbow. And that is to remember the promise that God made to the Jewish to the humankind that he would never bring a, a flood again. And even according to some commentators, one should not publicize that there's a rainbow because a rainbow is not a good sign. It's a bad sign. That means that we're worthy of destruction. But why the rainbow? There's so many other things. Why did God pick the rainbow to be that, <clears throat> that symbol of never again to bring a flood? What's the connection when the phenomenon of the rainbow with this new world order that happened after Noah's Ark? So to answer these questions and to highlight yet another one of the fourth question that we're about to ask, if we're talking about the Ark, one could have simply said the story of the ark, the human race, when God assigned the leading role of the world, turned against the creator, descending into violence and thievery and idolatry, and therefore God destroyed them all. Noah remained righteous, and therefore he decided to wipe everything else out. But if we take a closer look at the Torah's account of the flood, or after the flood, post-flood events, which seems like the entire flood operation of Noah's Ark is a remake of the creation of the world. And we're going to look at verses of the way God created the universe and what happened during the flood. And we will see so many similarities of how God went about the creation of the world and how he goes about the flood. And there are many parallels between the two stories. And it looks like this complete remake of the creation of what happened at the beginning of the creation when God created the universe. So let's take parallel number one. Parallel number one, we're going to look at the creation story and the ark story. So let's look at the description in text number three of the way God created the world. When God created the universe, it says as follows. In the book of beginning of book Genesis, second verse, 
The earth was desolate and void, and darkness was on the face of the water. Depths and the wind of the God hovered over the surface of the waters. God made the firmament, and he prepared between the waters below and the firmament of the waters above the firmament. And God said, the waters below and the heavens shall pool one place, and dry land shall be seen, and it was so. So let's look at this creation story. In the initial state of the creation, everything was submerged in water. In the words of the Medrash, there was water surfacing, there was water surfaced by water. The spirit of God representing the divine purpose of creation hovered over the waters. Number three, God imposed a barrier, which we call the firmament, between the waters above and the waters below. And finally, what does God say to the waters below? Recede, go down. Does that sound similar to our ark story? What happened when the world was created? There was water all over. The water splits. The water goes down. What happens by the ark? There was water all over the place. Water from above. Water from below came up. And then after, after 40 days of water above, the water started receding. And out comes the dry land. Again, those four steps. Number one, waters above and waters below. Well, again, the turning point comes when God says, passes over the earth. The ark, well, you want to say passes over the earth? Or even it's even brought in the words in Genesis chapter 8, where it says, uses the terminology, passes over the earth. The water gradually recedes, land emerges, and the people are told to go out. Seems exactly the same, right? Let's see parallel number two. The word, when God created the world, how did God create the world? Let there be light, let there be water, let there be, by ten utterances. What is the name of the thing that Noah was in? What do we call it? A teva. What is the word teva in Hebrew? means ark. But the word teva in Hebrew also means word. Another part of the creation of the universe. Let's take another step. What happens when... Genesis, in the book of Genesis, after he creates the human being, he tells Adam and Eve. In the book of Genesis, the first words that he tells to the husband and wife, Adam and Eve, the Torah tells them, gives them the blessings. What is the blessing? Be fruitful and multiply. What is the blessing to Noah and his family when they come out of the ark? Be fruitful and multiply. Exact same blessing. If you look in figure 2.2, on page 47, you can see the, the message that God gives Adam and Eve, which is recounted in chapter 1 in the book of Genesis. God blesses them and says to them, be fruitful and multiply, dominate the fish in the sea. What does God say to Noah and his family? Same exact words, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. A fourth comparison. Where was Adam and Eve when they were first created? In the Garden of Eden. What was the Garden of Eden? An utopia of reality. The place where there was no evil. It was unbelievable holding a sacred place. What was the Ark? The Ark is considered an utopia. If you look in text number four, the fourth Chabad Rebbe explains, and he says as follows, text number four, how are all these animals, because if you think about it, on the Ark, there was every single kind of animals. Animals who would usually attack and kill each other in the ark. They were living in peace. A messianic era when the wolf will lie with the lamb. Exactly what happened in the ark. 
Noah's Ark was a prototype of the future era of Mashiach. Within the Ark, every type of animal lived together, yet they did not harm each other in any way. The presage in reality is which the wool and in which the wolf will lie with the lamb and the calf and the lion together, thus being similitude of the future, and when they shall neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain. One last parallel. In the creation story, who are the three people? Three children, Cain, Abel, and Chase, and Seth. In the ark story, the couple has three children. Shame, Cham, and Yafas. So if we look over here, if you can see on figure 2.3 on page 49 in your books, you have a table which tells you the five similarities. We'll just recap them very quickly. Number one, the world emerges from water. Number two, created by utterances, words. Number three, the same blessing of be fruitful and multiply. Number four, Adam and Eve are placed in an utopia position. And as well as number five, humanity begins from three people. So if you look at the creation post-flood and creation pre-flood, very, very similar. However, against this background of their similarities, there are three differences. And let's go through their differences. Number one, big difference. The Garden of Eden which was the utopia that we mentioned. Who made that? God. Who made the ark? Human beings. God tells Noah, make yourself an ark. God didn't offer to build the ark for Noah. He told him, you got to go do it yourself. Difference number two. It was when did Noah, well, I'm sorry, when was the world created? After the water receded. Step number two was vegetation came. Step number three, there were animals. Step number four, there were birds. And finally, in step number six, humans came along. While post-flood creation, there was the waters and there was the ark and the people all simultaneously lived all together. There wasn't first the waters receding and only then the people came. They all lived together at the same time. And finally, post uh, difference number three, the only one to survive from the first three children was Seth. In fact, all of humanity came from Seth. There's only one opinion that says that actually Noah's wife, Nama, was Lamech's daughter, who was a great-grandchild of Cain, but not all opinions say, and even so, she was the only one that was left. It wasn't he didn't have a whole family. While Noah's family, Shame, Cham, and Yafas, as we read at the end of the book, uh, at the end of the chapters of Noah, they were the ones to populate the rest of the world because if you remember, they wanted to build a tower and they then went all over. So from the pre-flood creation, there was only one autonomous, one person, while post-flood creation, there were multiple variables of people that came from all over. So what we see, as you see in text number five, that these were the children of Noah, those going from the ark, Shem, Cham, and Yafes. From there, they dispersed in the whole world. Now, these significant, these differences, they may seem minor. Everyone's from Shays, but then when they came to Noach, there were three that they all went over. The people, the people from Shays, they 
Correct. Noyach was the only one from Trace to survive. Now, the differences may seem minor, but every detail in Torah is significant. And as we delve a little deeper into this arc story, we will see that these are not just differences, but they're fundamental principles in how we understand the post-creation after the flood or the post-flood world that came because of the flood. Rabbi, so just to summarize and, yes? Quick question. Wasn't oh. there somebody else that survived? I think like a fugitive Og or something like that? Uh, yes, there was Og, but, uh -huh. uh, he, but he did not have any children or even his children were all wiped out eventually by Moses. So it was not considered the general population of the world. And how did he survive then? He was survived by hanging on to the flood. It's a whole separate uh, Midrashic tale, but he basically survived by hanging on the side of the ark and he, Noah would feed him. The only reason, according to some, why he survived was that later on, he should be able to save Lot. But as I said, if we look into the story of the flood and its details in the ark, there's many, many different explanations and commentaries on it, but we're talking about the overall story and then we can better understand and we'll even understand the story of Og afterwards as well. So just to quickly, if you want to see a summary of the differences, you have it in text point in page 51, in the table there, figure 2.4, the differences between the two worlds. Which brings us now to our fourth and final question. If there is a pre-world, so a pre-flood uh, pre creation and a post-flood creation, why couldn't God just get it right the first time? If we now survive, because we see that the post-flood creation pretty much worked, because we're still here today, right? So why didn't God just go with plan B to begin with? So we know many people, I'm sure you once wrote an essay before, you did some type of work, you make a rough draft, then you make a final draft. But God doesn't need a rough draft. He knows what to make. What was the reason why God had to first make a plan A, regret the way he did, crumple it up, throw it out, and only then get it right the second time? Why couldn't he get it right the first time? Because he made, um, he made um, restrictions on their utopia. He said to Adam and Eve, you, you have you can enjoy everything. Right. You don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And after the flood, I don't see what God made. One second, but that was Adam and Eve. First yes. of all, first of all, that was only Adam and Eve. What happened to 10 generations between Adam and Noah? They didn't get any restrictions. In fact, even the few restrictions that they had, they didn't keep. Noah had to implement restrictions because of their misbehavior, which we know are the seven Ohio laws. But why didn't he get it right the first time? God knows what he's doing. We all agree, right? So why did he first make a plan A, scrap it, and then make a plan B? Why didn't he just get it right the first time? So let's just recap our four questions here to remind us. Number one, question number one. Why can't it happen again if the reason of the destruction of the flood was because of our misbehaviors and we brought it upon ourselves, irreparable sin? Why, couldn't, why can't it happen again? Number two, why the long process of making an ark and sitting in the water for a year time until the water recedes? God is, can make in an instant the world destroyed and bring it right back. Number three, why a rainbow? And number four, why not start with plan B? Why go through plan A to begin with? The whole new world order, and to understand this concept a little deeper and take this now to the mystical perspective, 
And what's the dynamic behind the whole arc story? We need to explore one fundamental principle in Judaism and the fundamental in the plan of God creating the universe. Why did God create the universe? Why did he create the world? And our sages explained to us that God created the world for one reason, to have a relationship. God desired to have a relationship. He wanted to partner with God. He wants us to partner with him in the creation of the universe. He wants to have a relationship with us. Now, what's a relationship? A relationship, by definition, means by two people who have a choice not to be in the relationship. If I have a relationship, because if I build a machine and it's robotic and I want it to act in a certain way and I build it exactly to the style and exactly the way I want, it's not a relationship. It's exactly me, just like in a machine. I take my desires, my wants, my wishes in a machine. A relationship by definition means that I take two people or two entities that have free choice to go where they want, what they want to behave, how they want them, when they want. And they both decide that we want to be in this relationship. For that reason, sometimes you hear the word opposites attract because if it's the same, it's not a relationship. It's just a copy of yourself. A relationship means between two free will things. Therefore, in a relationship, there are two types of relationships. There are two types of relationships. There's a relationship which we call a top-down and a bottom-up. Top-down relationship and a bottom-up relationship. Let's take the example, the classic example, which is brought in many talks of mysticism and Hasidicism about the two types of relationships. Text number six. Take a moment to delve into this mystical concept of relationship, the two types of relationships that we have with God. Both, here we are. We can better understand the difference by using the example of a teacher imparting ideas to a student. One approach is that the teacher explains the idea to the student, but does not train the student to understand it on their own. The second approach is that the teacher provides the student with the tools and means of which the student can study and understand the idea on their own. Each of these two approaches have an advantage over the other. In regard of the personal development of the student, the second approach is better, as only this approach imparts the ability and independability to learn to understand. But in regard to the quality of the reception of the idea itself, the first approach is better. Because the way the student understands the idea on their own is inferior to how the teacher teaches us. Both models require a relationship. Let's understand this relationship. A top-down relationship means a teacher walks into a class, a lecturer walks in, says what he has to say, you listened great, you didn't listen, you move on. Did he educate the student to understand? Absolutely not. It's a one direction. He's talking, you listen, great. You don't listen, over. Both of these relationships, you need to have a giver and a recipient. That means a teacher has to teach and the student has to be willing to listen. You can have a guy giving, 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 talk and talk and talk and talk. But if nobody's listening, he didn't teach anybody. 
So you need to have the student to listen regardless if it's only a top-down relationship. A bottom-up relationship is that the teacher teaches the student how to learn. He gives them the tools and then walks out. What does the student do now? The student now initiates on his own to find a way to learn. What's the disadvantage here? When you have a top-down relationship, what's the disadvantage with a top-down relationship? Or the student never learns on his own how to learn. What's the disadvantage with a bottom-up relationship? The student will only reach his capability. While when the teacher teaches it, he can tell him greater ideas because the teacher's well-versed and better knows it. This is the difference between when we talk about the top-down relationship and the bottom-up relationship. In both cases, the recipient, that means the student has to listen and the teacher has to give, regardless of what case. The only difference is that in the top-down relationship, it's one direction, the bottom-up relationship, the recipient can initiate as well. This, the Rebbe tells us, is the difference between a pre-flood creation and a post-flood creation. And by understanding this dynamic, we can better understand the entire saga of the flood. And he explains as follows. Look in text number seven. The goodness the world possessed, page 54, text number seven. The goodness that the world possessed before the flood derived not from its own nature, but from the fact that it was created by God. Therefore, when the sins of the generation of the flood corrupted the world to such an extent that the earth was filled with violence, there was no longer any purpose to its existence. The world has fallen so low as so far distanced itself from the creator that the divine desire for a world was withdrawn. On the other hand, after the flood, the world possessed the ability to elevate and refine itself on its own. Therefore, even when it falls to a very lowly state, it can repent, lift itself up. This is why God made a covenant that never shall the flesh be cut off. Never again will there be a flood, regardless of the world's moral state. When we spoke about the top-down relationship, the top-down model, remember, it was dependent on both parties. And because it was dependent on both parties, it was like the lecturer walks in, gives a lecture, but the students just leave the class. So what's it going to help if he keeps on talking? There's nobody there. Pre-flood, God gave of his kindness. The actual world itself did nothing to deserve it. Did nothing to appreciate it, did nothing to do in return. So it was God talking, and the student was gone. And therefore, sin ended the relationship. God said, you don't want to listen, I'm not talking anymore. For a relationship to happen, there has to be both parties. What happens post-flood? Post-flood, God says, no, I'm not just going to give. I'm going to give you the tools. Now you are going to invest. You're going to change. You're going to fix. Now, even if I stop talking and even if I leave the room, you still have the tools. Even if you walk away right now, you could come back later and learn again. So there you have the answer to our first question. 
What was our first question? What changed? Why can't the flood happen again now? Why can't the world be destroyed because of our sins now? Because now we can repair it. Because now the relationship is a bottom-up relationship. Now the relationship is dependent on us. Before the flood, the relationship was dependent on God. God was talking, we were just receiving. We stopped receiving, God stopped talking. But now God said, now I'm not just going to be the talking, you do the listening. You're going to do the talking too. We're the student, we're learning, we have the tools. So therefore humanity can recreate the relationship with God. So therefore a flood now will never happen. Destruction to the world will never happen because we can always recreate the relationship. Am I clear? Am I following? No, because that's, okay. that's if we want to. Very good. The student doesn't have to this moment want to learn, but the student always has the ability to pick up the tools and make that relationship happen. That means the relationship, the student's knowledge is not dependent on the professor anymore. Because anytime the student wants, it can pick up a book and study. So yes, you may say the world is in a level of corruption. We forgot about our creator, God forbid. But tomorrow I can turn around and start learning about my creator. The relationship is not dependent on the constant flow. The relationship is dependent on how I recreate it. It's up to me, not up to the one above. And if we don't want to? You lose out. You don't have the relationship. If all of us don't want then we don't have the relationship, but it doesn't bring a destruction because I have the tools. Because the flow is there. God imparted them within us the ability to recreate it. While pre-flood, we didn't have that ability. Pre-flood, our whole sustenance was only by the fact that God was showering us with kindness. The whole relationship was a one-way relationship. But if we don't want to, then what's the purpose of Hashem at all then? If we don't want to, we just want to go on and yeah, everything is, we'll do what we want to do. We know that the earth is not going to be in jeopardy anymore. So what is the purpose of Hashem? First of all, the Hashem is still there for us to be there. That means even in a relationship, let's take an, an example, a practical example of any relationship. Let's take a teacher-student. A student comes to class, a very practical case. A student comes to class, he has zero interest in learning. But the moment the teacher gave him the tools, it's inevitable that sometime in his life he's going to use that tool. Whether he wants to regard that tool as the teacher gave it to him or not, he has the tool to learn. And at any time, in any given moment, he is using that tool. Let's take the God and people relationship. Before the flood, the pre-flood, God's kindness was the only relationship that we had. It was a top-down. So the moment we removed ourselves from that relationship because of sin, the kindness was no longer coming to me. Post-flood, where God then embedded within the people a certain level of reciprocation that they need to be able to put into the world as an investment for the world to exist. Whether we choose to realize it or not, it is a God-given talent. It's a God-given relationship. Take, for example, the very fact that a person doesn't steal a person can come along and say, I'm an atheist and therefore I don't steal because I don't think it's morally correct. But the very fact that he doesn't steal, that he thinks that it's a moral value, not a God-given value, that's what God gave him. That is a God-given talent who taught him to find within the world the ability to connect to God, even though it seems only like a moral value, not a God value. 
So the way creation is today, automatically, in any given moment, something we do is creating a relationship with God, whether we recognize it at the moment yet or not. Take another example. If in a husband or in a spousal relationship, and the one takes out the garbage because it's dirty in the house, not because he wants to help the spouse. Is the garbage being taken out? Is the relationship being created 100%? Why? What? When and where is a different story? The same idea post-flood, the very fact that humanity can recreate the relationship, that tool in itself is a relationship. That means the very fact that the teacher imparted within the student a tool to learn is a relationship that can never be separate. Because you have that tool. And anytime you use that tool, you now have a relationship with the student. Think about your teacher who taught you how to read. The teacher who taught you how to read, even though you don't talk to them, you haven't met them in 50 years. But every time you read, the reason why you read, you're having a relationship with that teacher. Let's go now to the second question. I'm sorry. Which answers now again? This answers our first question. Why can't it happen again? Humanity can recreate the relationship, so therefore it can't happen again. In the previous lesson we spoke about, the idea that every single person is a micro-universe. And the human being is reflected of the nature of the macro-universe of creation. As King Solomon's words, he said, also the world has placed in his heart. Every single person is a mini-world. The same token, we understand that every change of nature that happened within the world is the human being is affected by it. And one indicator that we see is the natural phenomenon of the rainbow. Now, what is a rainbow? I'm not going to get into the science of it, but I'm going to instead play for you a little video of what and how a rainbow happens. And based on that, we'll be able to understand the rainbow. A ray of light is made up of the same seven colors seen in a rainbow. This is seen when a ray of light is shone at an angle through a prism, a triangular shaped piece of glass. Hold on, let's just see if we don't have sound here. Slows down as it goes from air to glass and causes the ray of light to bend. You hear sound on this that This is end? called refraction. Yes, you do hear Each sound. Each color though, in a ray is bent at a different yes. angle. Allowing I'm seven second. colors to be seen. Video so we can hear sound here. The red light. A ray of light is made up of the same seven colors seen in a rainbow. This is seen when a ray of light is shone at an angle through a prism, a triangular-shaped piece of glass. Light slows down as it goes from air to glass and causes the ray of light to bend. This is called refraction. Each color in a ray is bent at a different angle, allowing seven colors to be seen. The red light gets bent the least, while the violet light bends the most. Sunlight, therefore, is key to the science of rainbows. Light travels more slowly through water than air, so that raindrops act as prisms, bending, separating, and reflecting the light that shines through them. We can see a rainbow because the separated light is reflected toward our eyes. 
So this illustration you see clearly about how a rainbow works. Whoops. There we go. We have how the rainbow works. The illustration shows us that the ray of the sunlight passing through into the droplet of the water vapor suspended in the atmosphere. And as it passes through the droplet, the ray is bent or deflected in such a way that the original white light comes out into how many different colors? Seven different colors, right? Is it? I think seven different colors. And under the right condition, sorry? Oh, okay. Under the many different, under the certain conditions, that's when you get to see the rainbow. Now, what is this? Because technically, the white light has in it all the different colors. And what happens to, with the white light having, having all the different colors? If you put a red pane, what you would get is only the red light coming through. The white light going through those droplets and the sunlight shining it and refracts and unleashes this beautiful spectrum of light. Now, let's understand this back to our pre-flood and post-flood phenomena. Text number eight. Follow with me. Page 56, how the Rebbe explains the rainbow. The Torah states, My bow I have set in their clouds, and it shall be as a sign of a covenant between me and the world. The commentaries ask, The rainbow is a natural phenomenon, formed when the rays of light and sunlight are reflected in a certain way through the mist. So how does it serve as a sign of the covenant? The answer given is that the natural phenomenon in itself, the fact that under certain conditions, sunlight and clouds produce a rainbow was created by God after the flood. Before the flood, the world was more materialistic. So also the clouds, which form when a mist rises from the earth, were coarser and did not possess the ability to receive and reflect the rays of the sun. Therefore, there was no rainbows. But when the world became more refined, the clouds too became more refined and translucent and now possess the ability to reflect and radiate the array of colors contained within the light of the sun. Therefore, the rainbow serves as a sign of the covenant between me and the world as it expresses the purity and refinement that the world has attained. Originally, the world's greatness was not inherent quality it possessed, only the product of the matter in which it was created by God. It was only as a result of the flood that God imbued a new quality into the world, the ability to elevate and refine itself on its own. This is the way the phenomenon of the rainbow came to exist only after the flood. A rainbow is, a rainbow is firmed by the convergence of sunlight and clouds, but the, lay, but the rays of the sun themselves representing the divine radiance bestowed upon it from above are the abstract color. The colors of the rainbow are extracted by means of the clouds formed by the mist rising from the earth, and only when the rising mist is sufficiently refined or transparent to reflect the light of the sun, since the world's ability for the self-revivement came only after the flood, it was only then that the rainbow was set in the cloud. So the physical universe is a mirror image of our relationship with God. So now let's take the rainbow. Pre-flood, what was the relationship we have with God? A top-down relationship. Pre-flood, it was only able to absorb from the divine. There were thick clouds. The world was coarse. There was evil. There was different things that were before the world. The world itself did not have a refinement. And therefore, there was no rainbow. Post-flood, it was bottom-up. The world now had an ability to interact with the divine. 
What is the symbolism of bottom up? The mist that comes from the ground, the sun reflecting through it, the refined cloud. What does the mist represent? That the world itself was refined, that it can now tolerate the blessing that's coming from an eye. The ability for the physical world to transform itself. That's the rainbow. That's the symbolism of the rainbow. That's the gift that the rainbow gives us. That's the reason why before the flood, there was no such concept of a rainbow because the clouds were more thick. They didn't have the ability to have a transparency and a reflection because it was only coming from above. There was no need for it. But once the world has changed in a bottom-up relationship where God gave the gift to the universe that they now can also reciprocate, that they can also bring something higher, all of a sudden you see this beautiful interaction, mist going up, sun shining through, and you have the beautiful colors of the rainbow. This, the God says, is the symbol that the flood will never happen again. Why? Because you are doing something. You are interacting with God. You are creating a relationship. You are working harmoniously with God. Mist coming up, sun coming down. The beautiful harmony of a relationship with God is happening. So a flood cannot destroy the world again. There's a relationship. Remember the flood happened. The destruction of the world happened because of the deterioration of a relationship. But when there's a relationship, a fundamental difference, and now answers our third question. We now understand why the significance of the rainbow is the physical manifestation of the new reality that happens in the world post-flood era. Now let's go back to question number two. Question number two was, why then the need of an ark? Couldn't God find some other magic trick in his hand to be able to destroy the world and figure it out. Let's go back to our top-down relationship versus our bottom-up relationship. By now, you should have figured out that when there's a top-down relationship, the giver gives, and the recipient has to also accept. But when there's a top-down relationship, it's determined by the giver. The giver gives as much as he wants, the teacher walks into the class and says what his on, was on his mind, not necessarily what the students want to hear. He talks for an amount of time that he likes to talk or that he wants as great as the teacher may be. They will only succeed in transmitting a message to the student should the student want to listen. The student doesn't want to listen. You're not going to get any message across. On the other hand, when it comes to a bottom-up relationship, who determines what they're going to learn and study? The student. The teacher gives the tools, but the teacher is now going, the student is now going to decide how far I want to go with it. And if the student wants, he can sometimes even supersede his teacher if he works really, really hard, but it's very difficult. This is why when we talk about the survival of Noah and his family, it had to be done through Noah. Because pre-flood, divine action is what brought you and what saved you. Post-flood, you want to survive? You want to show that you have something? You want to bring something to the table? You got to do it. 
You're not going to be fed. You got to do something about it. So the survival of Noah and his family had to be through a natural process of water coming up. And because the water came up, it now had to recede. And once the water receded, it had to be dry enough for the, for the, for the people in the ark to come out. And once the people in the ark came out, then they were able to do it. And even during the flood, they had to be in the ark, taking care of the animals. It was a hard job. Noah got beaten up. He didn't sleep. No wonder why he drank when he came out. He was celebrating. He was working hard. Because what's the world going to be founded upon? When Noah comes out of the ark, is going to be founded on the concepts and the precepts that it's going to be your hard work that makes it happen. Where did it start? In the ark. Which this also gives us to explain now some of the differences that we mentioned before in the pre-creation and in the post-creation. And the first time God created the world, what did we mention? How did the waters get there? Where, I'm sorry, where was that utopia that was there? The Garden of Eden was made by God. While the ark was humanly constructed. Because in the first way God created the world, the top-bottom relationship, God gives me everything I need. He gives me the Garden of Eden, the tree of life, the tree of knowledge. I have no worries in the world. I don't even have to get dressed. In the post-flood creation, I got to do something. If I want this world to be a good place, if I want to make an utopia, I got to work. I got to make an ark. Divine action in the first case, will natural process in the second. The second difference was homogenous versus diverse. Who was remained after the, after the, by the first creation? Only Seth, Cain and Abel were gone. Divine action comes one straight arrow. This is what you get. This is the way it is. But all of a sudden, post-flood era, we have a shame, we have a hum, we have a yafas, we have all different colors and varieties of people that they go throughout all over the universe and they're all different. All different colors, all different shapes, all different types of people, different languages. That's exactly what a post-flood era looks like. Everybody working on his own, in his own talent, in his own quality, in his own capability to create that relationship. This reflects the multicolored relationship that every single human being can have with the divine. But we're still left with our first question, with our fourth question, I should say. Question number four, why not go to plan B from the start? Why not go to plan B from the start? While we answered, it all had to come through the natural process. Because the human being had to do something. And that's why the ark and that's why the long flood. We're still left with our fourth question. Is if all we just said. If the bottom up relationship is ideal. God. Just start with the bottom up relationship. We just spoke about how well and how good it is to have the bottom up relationship. Let's do that. And why didn't God go plan, straight to plan B? And the Rebbe explains as follows. Text number nine. Page 59. The world was created for the sake of the Torah. And the goal of giving the Torah was to achieve a union of the higher realms and the lower realms. 
Therefore, the world needed to incorporate both states, a top-down mode of existence and a bottom-up mode of existence. Subsequently, the two can be unified. This was the change that achieved by the flood. Before the flood, the nature and the world was, generally speaking, a top-down existence, whereas after the flood was defined by a bottom-up existence. You know, once this parent complains and says, oh, I want my child to be their own person. Let them get a beautiful house, live on their own independently. Something, I want my children to have things in life that I couldn't afford. So they asked them, why? He says, oh, because then I can move in with them. When you look at the concepts over here, what is, what is the Torah telling us over here? The quality of achieving something. The Torah is telling us that the two types of relationship, each one has an advantage over each other. As we mentioned earlier, the top-down relationship is a direct flow from God. You can't stop that. Nothing better than that. The bottom-up relationship, you work on your own. There's always a room for improvement, but there's always a gap. But at the end of the day, it's only up to me. How good am I? The goal of creation was to be able to fuse the two together, to have a top-down relationship and a bottom-up relationship. This way, we can achieve both, to be receptive and at the same time, be proactive. Of course, in order to be receptive, I have to have what Hasidism calls bitl, self-nullification. And that's why we say it in the end of Shimon Esrei, my soul must be like dust. And only then, and only then can I understand something. If you think you know it all, you're never going to learn a thing in your life. In order to know something, in order to receive something, you have to be an empty vessel. So if you want a top-down relationship, you got to be receptive. But I also want the bottom-up relationship, which is I want to be proactive. I want to be able to have a part in this. I want to have an active role in having this relationship with God. Reciprocating, enjoying, and using my own strength. So why couldn't you do that without any need? Well, after, after they were thrown out from let's the go, let's go. So let's go a step further. Because to me, it's like a parent with a child. The child grows up, has a different relationship with the parent. So why couldn't Hashem wait to add in? Let's, so let's, okay, let's see. Let's see what happened with change with the flood, and you'll see why. So why couldn't God simply destroy the old world and build a new one in its place in an instant? And instead, he kept Noah and his family a few of the animals in an ark for a year long to be able to rebuild the new world. The same way God built the world from anew the first time, could have done it again the second time with the bottom-up idea or with the fusion of the two. But God wanted a remnant from the original creation in the form of animals and people in the ark. The mini-world floated and touched upon the water that was consumed of the universe, the water from above and the water below, for a year. And only then did they come out of the ark. And only then was this new world order created, paving the way for a unification of a top-down and a bottom-up 
mode of existence. What does that mean? The creation was created after waters needed. The ark existed simultaneously with the flood. The difference of why Adam couldn't have that relationship. Because the way God created the world from the beginning was in such a method that every single day he was giving. There was no achievement of human. Adam did nothing to make it into the Garden of Eden. Adam did nothing on this universe to be able to receive what he did. While Noah worked, built an ark, stayed in the ark for a year, taking care of the animals, meaning he did something to create the relationship. And where was Noah at that time? While the water was submerged. He was floating on the water. Why? Because that is the fusion of the top down with the bottom up relationship happening at once. Yes. Yes. Correct. Because the way God created the world. Correct. Because the way God created the it's not his fault, but the way God created the universe the first time was in that method of a relationship. The relationship of an all-giving relationship. And the only time there was the unification of these two models was with the creation of the universe, with, with the story of the flood, with the time that, that Noah was in the ark. Rabbi? So what we see over here, the deeper reason of what we find that creation did was to simultaneously have both models. What the flood did was I, while I have the water above and the water below coming up, I have an ark floating in its mists. Could have this happened in plan A? Absolutely not. Because there was no human being to be able to have a reciprocation. Adam couldn't have achieved this because he didn't have the ability to take from what was there. He was automatically put into the place and given everything. After the sin, he was expelled from the garden. But he didn't. The fact of the matter is that they decided to not continue the relationship and they walked out of class, like the student who walked out of class. Rabbi? Yes. Is it possible that Noah was afraid of Hashem? Was Noah afraid of Hashem? Sorry, say it again. I missed what you said. I said, was Noah afraid of Hashem? Yes. Noah was considered a God-fearing person. Okay. So is that why why he did whatever Hashem said to him? Sorry? Is that why he did whatever Hashem... That's why he was the one to merit, to be in the ark while everybody else was out of the ark. Because he was afraid? Because he followed God and he did it out of fear. It says Noah was not the greatest believers, but he was afraid. But at the end of the day, that he ended up in the ark and everybody else was out. This now takes us and finally answers our fourth question. Our fourth question was, why didn't we begin with plan B? Simply put, the answer is to enable the unification of both models. I can't have both models if there's no people around. The only way that both models were able to happen is once there were people. Once they made that mistake. And technically, you are right. If Adam and the people during the flood, before the flood, excuse me, would have repented and seen their wrong ways, they would have been able to achieve maybe that level. But what, God, what changed with the post-flood era was that God ingrained it within the human being 
that they should have that ability. That it became part, it was like, it's imagine the difference when a teacher says, you can either stay in class and listen or you can walk out, you have the choice. Or the teacher makes it so intriguing and gives you the tools and says, you don't wanna miss what's coming next. Before the flood, yes, the students could have listened, answered back, made some type of connection, but they didn't. After the flood, post-flood era, or the very fact that the ark was floating on the waters at the same time with no one in, and the self-achievement, it was within ingrained within the universe, the concept and the ability for reinventing this type of concept. So yes. How did, how did Noah change from before the flood? You're saying he himself? He himself. Okay, that's a very good question. Or, um, you know, did he have a deeper connection? So, very good question. Because he wasn't that great before the flood. He, he was, was pretty best. great. Let's not. The best or the worst. Well, that's. The, well, he's still pretty great. Okay. Okay. Well, if you would be in his shoes, let, well, would we do better? I don't know. Well, I'd be lucky. Okay, so Noah was pretty great. Let's not undermine who Noah was, but okay. at the same time, Noah did change in himself because the very fact that he made the seven Ohide laws or the seven Ohide laws came with Noah coming out of the ark, he realized there was a need for the human being to do something in order to have that relationship. While Noah himself lived as a person and as a holy roller, for example, before Noah went into the ark, he was building an ark for 120 years. He didn't find it necessary to try to persuade the people around him. That means he didn't think that people have the ability to change. After the, no, after the flood, he, he then realized that people do have the ability to change in a post-flood era. Rabbi? Yes. You said that, that Noah feared God. Did not Adam also fear God? Of course he feared God, but not enough to be able to... And that's why Adam himself had a very wonderful relationship with God. But it didn't make a difference to the people after him. Mm. And Adam was spared from the flood too. Adam lived a nice long life of 980 years. I think that was pretty decent. I'm sorry? 930 years. I'm sorry. We gypped him 50 years. Okay, 930. This is not just a story of a mystical exploration, but this also has to do with our own lives. And we are always challenged to integrate in our own life, both the receptive and the proactive in all our relationships. In any relationship we have, whether it's a student-parent, a student-teacher relationship, parent-child relationship, spousal relationship, worker-employee-employer relationship, a God and us relationship, every single relationship we have, there are two ways, there are two parts of the relationship. There's the giver and there's the recipient. And in every single relationship where there's a giver and a recipient, there's a possibility for the relationship to be only a top bottom, where a parent spoils their child. Or there's a relationship where it's only a bottom up and anything the parent child wants, he has to beg and plead. Or you can make a nice fusion of the two. Our discussion, our takeaway from today is to look at a few examples of these types of relationships and see what are the pros and cons of any of these relationships and see how we can train ourselves to be able to fuse these two, to be both receptive and at the same time proactive in every relationship. So if we look in figure 2.6 on page 60, you have the two types of relationships. You have the top down and bottom up. We'll just go through a few of them here. There's a teacher-student where the teacher lectures, the student listens, the teacher trains the student, the learning skills and tools feel free to fill in pros and cons. 
Employer, employee, employer gives instructions which the employee follows. Employer outlines the goals of the business. Employee develops the strategies on how to realize them, right? Philanthropist and beneficiary. Philanthropist contributes the money and feeds the clothes and the needy. The philanthropist funds educational and employee opportunities and the needy uplift themselves. Prevent parent-child. We have parent-child provides child with all their needs. Where parents offer guidelines of support, but encourages the child to build their own little, their own life based on their child's abilities and aspirations. God and us, most importantly, God commands we obey, or we use our own understanding and creativity to understand the meaning of the mitzvahs and their relevance in our lives. This concludes today's class. Next exercise for the week. There you go. Emma's going to make sure we all do it. Select one area in your life which you play an active and initiating role and think of ways that you can be more receptive to what others have to offer. Next week, we're going to 